welcome to Be Simply This Is She, and I want to thank you for joining us today. We have special guests, Yasmin Skamahorn from TEDx Vale. We have the link to her talk below, and today we're going to dive a little deeper into the wisdom she shared there in Vale, and she will also leave us with a call to action to potentially inspire all of us to simply serve in the moment. Without further ado, let's dive in with Yasmin. Yasmin, I would like to thank you for being here today. I'm really excited to shine a light on your story and your inspiration. I would love for you to share with the audience a little bit about um, where you're at today. Uh, they have, have the link to your video from TEDx Vale. I'd love for you to share, and then we're going to back into the story uh, from there. Uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. I'm so excited to have this opportunity to share a little more about my story. And I am currently in Edwards, Colorado, in the beautiful Vale Valley. And uh, I'm about to embark on a little road trip up to the Pacific Northwest for the off-season, since uh, life kind of dies here in the valley um, October, November, until the holidays pick up and work starts again. Your lifestyle change. Uh, you basically took a moment for yourself to really go into service and to listen to uh, doing something that was very unconventional. If you can speak a little bit about what it took to take that leap of faith and how that listening has helped you uh, from there forward. To kind of segue into that, I want to give you a little backstory as to kind of how that kind of got put onto my radar, if you will. As a child, I have family in Egypt. My mother's Egyptian, Swedish, and we would frequently go spend the summers in Egypt. And as a young child, my mom always, you know, instilled the importance to see those that are less fortunate and how to give to those, um, not necessarily monetarily, but just through love and kindness, through affection through sharing of food, clothes, etc. So I remember as a young child collecting clothes from the neighborhood and we would actually be allotted several boxes to fly with for free and we would distribute them into poor communities. And we would also buy milk, we would buy actual meat because many of these poor families would just buy fat for their families. So as a young child, this service was very much instilled in my life and throughout my middle school and high school years I would try to volunteer with flood reliefs and river cleanups and feeding the homeless and things of that nature so this has been part of my life now moving forward to my purpose project interesting thing about it is that what it came out of nowhere this was nothing I consciously was planning to do um, it came and was birthed out of a really tragic incident. Um, I had gone to a chiropractor after one of my trips abroad to Morocco by myself, and I returned and I had an adjustment. And that afternoon I felt great. And I woke up the next morning, was ready to make a cup of tea, and just that motion to reach for my tea mug, I completely collapsed in my kitchen. And that was May 29, 2014. I couldn't feel anything from my waist down. I was shaking. I had heat and tingling radiating from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. Um, it took me 30 minutes just to army crawl across my apartment to get a phone to call for help. Mm -hmm. So completely 
turned my life upside down in the sense that nothing else mattered but what I was physically experiencing. I didn't know what was happening in my body. Nobody did. And in those weeks of being unable to go to work, um, being able to leave my house, I couldn't even stand up to get into my bed. I had friends bring me food. I had friends bathe me. I had friends just sit with me while I cried. And it was a very, very dark time for me. I'm a very independent woman. And to not be able to do anything on your own and have no idea what on earth was happening in your body, would I ever be able to stand up again? was very scary. Hmm. And so in those moments when I was by myself and, you know, I was in excruciating pain, you know, I had a really big surrender moment and I kind of just sat with myself and kind of praying. I was just like, you know what? Greater power, universe, whatever you want to give name to something greater than ourselves and energy, whatever, what have you, if there is something you want me to do, if there is something I need to make a change in my life, please tell me. I'll do it. And I really believe that literally being brought down to the floor was the universe's way of kind of giving me a wake-up call and kind of forcing me to be open and to realize that this journey of life isn't all about me, that there's something greater leading me and guiding me. And it was a few weeks later that I heard a calling, and by calling meaning something that was transmuted through me. If you want to, I, I still to this day can't put it into logical terms because mm. it's not a concrete or logical experience that I've ever had. But I basically heard a message through me that told me to put my life on hold, to quit my job, and go volunteer around the world for six months. And it mm. told me, I mean, starting in Vietnam, Cambodia, and India, you know, when I would leave and what I would call it. And I literally freaked out. That was the most mm-hmm. mind-blowing, uh, you know, here's this package deal. This is what I want you to do. Um, but I was not consciously preparing for this or thinking about this. This is, like I said, out of left field. And it took me a couple weeks to digest that that was from something greater than myself. And that I had to honor it. Beautiful. And during that uh, state of just, you can't deny you're being told to do something, yet your rational mind cannot make sense of it. Uh, What was the final tipping point when you finally digested uh, moving forward? When something that clear speaks to you, definitely I went into normal. I was a normal reaction. I freaked out. I thought I was going crazy. I didn't tell anybody. Mm. But what I realized is as the days went by, the voice got louder and stronger Mm. and to the point where I couldn't deny it. I couldn't ignore it. And I realized I wouldn't be able to live with myself knowing that I didn't give this a try, that I didn't just Mm. take that first step And so, long story short, and that I think was mid-August was when I realized, my gosh, my dates are all confused now. Mid-July, I believe, I started really kind of attacking the Internet. I'd get home from work at around 11 o'clock. I would get on the Internet and read forums and blogs of what the volunteerism world is out there because there's a good side and there's a bad side, naturally. And 
I wanted to educate myself to find the right projects, and things in miraculous ways started coming to my attention from people you know, I would connect with during the day and kind of share a little tidbit of this idea, and they would say, hey, talk to this person, or I know this person. And there were all these, like, threads that started to appear. And I would start to connect these threads, and projects would just be created. These weren't like, mm. oh, I need to go to this country. I honored the first three, which was in this order, Vietnam, Cambodia, and India. I didn't necessarily have projects. The projects all found me. You know, I definitely mm. put my time into it, but the way it was such an organic and beautiful um, process to creating and finding these projects that I went and served on. And if you can share a little bit about the projects that you went to in each of these locations. So the project was six months and six projects. Um, I started in Vietnam, Hanoi, Vietnam, and it was with the Vietnam Friendship Village, which was founded by George Mizo, who was actually a U.S. war veteran and became a peace activist uh, to kind of help and create the sanctuary due to his health issues from Agent Orange, which was sprayed over the entire country during the mm -hmm. Vietnam War. And this sanctuary he created had 50 war veterans and comprises of five homes with over 100 children that are still affected by Agent Orange. Mm -hmm. Developmentally, structurally, I mean, it was just a complete shock to see that this is still today a problem. And they had a school system set up and a garden and um, different classrooms to help teach these children you know, hygiene and art and dance. And there were several classrooms dedicated to vocational studies. And my role, I did two different things. I would help in the special ed classrooms. They had a shortage of teachers. In addition, I would take the role of a mother because each of the homes had roughly 20 children and only one house mother, and she was overwhelmed already. And so I would definitely feed a lot of the children that couldn't feed themselves. I would bathe the kids. Um, I would have a line of about 10 kids every day um, asking for me to wash their hair and give them their head massage and to combing girls' hair. They would bring me all their hair ties, and I would comb their hair and... Um, even something simple like painting their nails. I went and picked up nail polish in the local shop, and one day I painted 60 kids' nails, boys and girls. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it absolutely just was one of the most sweet, sweetest little moments to see their face just light up in such darkness that they experience and um, live on a day-to-day -day life, you know, a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. Um, so, yeah, very raw and real moments there in Vietnam. And then Project 2 was in Siem Reap, Cambodia with Trailblazer Foundation. And this was a clean water project. And one in seven kids die due to waterborne illness um, that can be preventable. That's obviously linked to the contaminated water they have. And I worked with this organization to build biosand water filters, which was founded by Dr. David Manns in the late 80s. And the beautiful thing about these filters is that they're completely sustainable. They don't require any power and uses gravity to filter. And all mm -hmm. the materials, which are sand and gravel, are found locally. And um, so they last about 8 to 10 years. And we would go out and work with local chiefs and communities outside of Angkor Wat, just people living below the poverty line, making $2 a day. 
mm-hmm. and they functioned on microeconomies. So these families would pitch in $3 and they would all be able to share these water filters that would supply their families with water and hopefully keep their children alive. Wow. Um, moving to Project 3 was in Calcutta, India, and this was actually Mother Teresa's hospice, which she founded in the 1950s. And there were volunteers from all over the world. When I was there, there was probably about 150 volunteers, ranging from ages 18 to 65, literally from all over the world. And there are currently six projects in that area in Calcutta that Mother Teresa founded. And one of the sisters sent me to Premdon, which is one of the largest hospices. Um, It's about 300 patients. And the role there would be laundry. We would strip all the beds, so there'd be 150 men and 150 women, roughly. And the volunteers would be separated, men and women as well. So all the women would work with the women, and we would go through the three-story building that they all lived in and strip all the beds, wash the floors, um, change the patient's clothing. Um, these are people on their deathbeds. These are people with missing ligaments. These are people that have had acid thrown on them due to horrible cultural beliefs in women. I mean, one in particular, she, her husband threw a bucket of acid on her entire body because he found out that she had a baby girl instead of a baby boy. So there mm. are things that are still happening around the world that just blow your mind. Um, so a lot of real, real work at that hospital center. You saw there was was a very real and raw experience, you know, being there. Yeah. And Mm. uh, project four was Ramana's Garden, and that was in North India at the base of the Himalayas in Rishikesh. And this project was founded by Prabhavati, who is an American woman who came from Colorado Springs, actually. And... She, on her spiritual pilgrimage to India years ago, received her calling to open this home for children to provide not only a home but a school um, and food and education and all that. And she founded this about 18 years ago and specifically for children that are born into this untouchable caste, which is still prevalent in India. Um, And the untouchables are essentially... You know, families, children that are born into this horrible caste in which they believe it's their birthright to pick up the shit of everybody else. And so they are not mm-hmm. ever fully, you know, they're banned essentially from participating into Indian social life. So this home comprised of children that were born into that caste, children that, you know, were saved from prostitution and child labor. And I spent my time with the children and working in a cafe that they have on the premise. Um, They grow all their food there locally, all their organic food, and they have um, animals and chickens and um, sustain the whole family there. And so the volunteers would work in the cafe and with other um, visitors, and we would educate, you know, people coming in, and um, the kids would be working and helping as well, and it's just a beautiful community um, there in Rishikesh. And then moving on to number five was Millennium Elephant Foundation in Sri Lanka. And that was founded in 1999 with the World Society for the Protection of Animals. And this foundation was essentially created to be a sanctuary and provide medical services for elephants. And elephants in Asia, unfortunately, there's a lack of education 
and there is the tourism side of it has really caused a lot of health problems for the elephants and their spines. And so this sanctuary had about eight elephants and um, essentially saving them from the logging industry and horrible, horrible ceremonies that these elephants just get traumatized in. And, and we lived with other volunteers in the middle of the jungle. And we would have about 10-hour days getting up and working with local vets to give each of the elephants their uh, vitamins and minerals. And uh, we would take them down to the river and give them their bath, which isn't just throwing water on the elephants, but we would work with their mahouts. And they're essentially like bonded to a mahout, which is a local who works with the elephant. There's a bond, and the elephant will only respond to one mahout. And so it was really fascinating witnessing the commands and different acupressure points that they press on to create a response and to communicate with the elephant. So I worked with one elephant and um, with a couple different volunteers, and we would clean up the poop, so I would have to collect... I mean, football-sized poops every single day. And there would mm. be, like, anywhere from 50 to 100 of them, and we would have to look for certain things. And so that was quite the experience, living in the jungle and helping with, the, you know, the elephants and all that. And lastly, the sixth project was in Guatemala. And it was a construction project. So I did two things. I constructed a library and little clinic in a village called San Mateo, working with the local foreman. Um, when I first got up into this village, we saw a line of maybe 150 women waiting in line for one clinic uh, mm. to see a doctor who would come maybe once a month from another village. And so it was really fulfilling to know that we were doing something to be able to help that community and to build these clinics and literally from mixing cement by hand to, you know, working 10, 12-hour days, building these, these beautiful Beautiful, I say beautiful, beautiful because I built it with, you know, by hand. And <laughs> a lot of other volunteers, um, but very simple, but structurally just what they needed and to support that community. And then we moved to another village, San Felipe, and built a new kitchen for a retirement community. And we're literally breaking down walls with sledgehammers. And I mean, it was just like demolition, you know, demo day with with the craziest of tools and we didn't have any proper tools <laughs> like it was just what they had and we made it happen and change happened you know and so that was really gratifying as well to see that you were at a month in each location and then how long did it take you to integrate all of this once you returned back uh, to the states so there's something called reverse culture shock that for those that haven't left the country for an extended period of time, you don't really get it. It's kind of like when you take a vacation, there's a high and then you come back and there's a couple days where you're like, oh, I wasn't that, you know, in Cabo San Lucas on the beach and now I'm back to my job. And it's a similar concept, but it hits you a lot harder, this reverse culture shock. So I really struggled for several months reintegrating back. You know, here I just had these mind-blowing, powerful experiences, and now I'm in my home country with all my Western luxuries, and I was so depressed, and I couldn't figure out why. Mm. And the only thing that kept me afloat was reaching out to other volunteers and realizing that every single one of them was going through the same thing. And simple things, like just things that you never 
that you took for granted, you know, clean sheets, warm water, you know, clean food, um, just no, having no noise, just find, you know, being able to walk in nature and be on your own and quiet. I mean, there were days where, especially in Calcutta, India, the noise doesn't stop. You know, there's weddings happening and there's animals and there's celebrations and there's just so many people that you couldn't find a moment to even think for yourself, and I would just freak out some days. I'm like, I need peace, and you can't find it. You know, and that's where mindfulness and meditation have kind of helped me throughout my life to really kind of still the outside noise so that I can kind of be within and know that that's my little sanctuary that I can go to as long as I cultivate that practice. So, again, coming back to even grocery shopping, I would have panic attacks at the grocery store when I would look mm. at how many detergents were there and when I saw how much food we had and how so many people I had been around were struggling to even just buy fat for their families and couldn't even buy regular milk. So things that really humbled you and really shift the way I react in this life and how the choices I make, and, and um, it, 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 it was a very hard adjustment coming back. Mm. usually is every time I leave. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so how has that changed the way you choose to live your life? You mentioned as we were getting on, um, you're in Colorado, uh, take time away during off-season. So how have you structured your life so that you can still be in service and yet work and sustain yourself? So first and foremost, I think it comes, the biggest thing for me is simplicity and choosing to see what is providing the most happiness and fulfillment in my life. And I think that stems from being of service to yourself allows you to be of service to others. And you've got to fill your own tank before you can fill others' tank and be of service to everyone you come in touch with. So I think a, you know, the practice of, of serving yourself, whether that's through a yoga meditative practice, whether it's through reading, whether it's through cooking, finding ways, to nourish yourself, to fill yourself up, because that radiates and makes you know ripple effect to everyone you meet. Um, I do take time in the off season to travel to fulfill that um, adventurous spirit I have that's just born you know it's in myself. And again, the service side, I think it doesn't have to be a big trip like the one I part, you know went on and embarked on. It's I use this little mantra, give as you go. You know, it doesn't have to be something grand. It can be simple things. When I'm in Denver and Boulder and I see the homeless people just just trying to live their lives, I always make sure I have some fruit or some, you know, some snacks in the car. And whenever I see one at the corner, I roll down my window, I smile, I say hello, and I offer them something. I offer them food. You know, I don't offer money, but I offer food. It's something that's important to me. And I, when I'm in Denver, I try to pass out lunches or some programs that I'd like to um, be part of and gathering with other people to distribute lunches across, you know, the really city park and um, Park Avenue in, in Denver and, um, you know, giving food, giving, giving hygiene packages to, uh, you know, just different, there's all kinds of things happening all the time, but I think just human connection, man, human connection, walking eyes with somebody who's maybe having a bad day, opening the door for somebody, just being conscious. You know, those are simple mm. things you give that, that can really complimenting somebody. Oh, my gosh. Like, I know there's been days where 
I've had a hard time and somebody just acknowledged me and, you know, complimented me on something or just said hello and got me out of my little days. And I remember just smiling for, for several minutes after that. I just like made my day. And I'm like, what a simple thing we can do every single day. And we have so many opportunities. We're meeting so many people at the gas station. Just, hello, how are you? You know, mm. something so simple that just creates such a beautiful ripple effect in, in everyone's lives. So I like to take that mantra with me as I go on my adventures and just give as I go. What's the one aspect of your service that you felt was so important for you to witness and see and really hold on, keep with you even today during your time? To be honest, when I really, there's so many, I mean, amazing and powerful moments not always easy but but um i would have to say human connection because mm. what i realized traveling through all these different countries and specifically starting in vietnam and this village where i spoke i did not speak a ounce of vietnamese and nor did these children speak an ounce of english and what i realized is it wasn't about the words exchanged it was about looking, it's the universal language of just looking into someone's eyes, to a smile, to laughter, to affection. Um, specifically, New was a little girl I mentioned in my TEDx talk, and that's, um, I, I had a little video when I sang to her, and this little girl had severe mental and emotional trauma. And when I witnessed her sitting by herself, she would be rocking back and forth and banging her head against the wall, and I just freaked out. I was like, what is happening? Why is anyone doing anything about this? And I realized that when she'd get stressed, she'd take her thumbs and press them into her eye sockets to stimulate Mm. the optical nerve, allowing her to see stars, and that would calm her down. Mm. I was like, whoa. And again, I'm not a medical professional. I didn't speak Vietnamese, but a major shift happened within her and within myself during those few weeks that I was there. And it was through song. It was through mm. sound. And I would sit with yeah. her and I would hold her and I would sing to her and different, the vibration would calm her down and she would slow her rocking. And just in that time where I sat with her and I sang her songs that she's probably never heard of before, mm. you know, I remember one day she just reached her. She couldn't see me. She reached out and she just touched my face and she smiled. Mm. And it was such a precious moment to, be, to realize that there was no money exchange. There was no um, visual stimulation for her. There was no words spoken. It was purely through love, affection, and, you know, time that, that this little girl felt something. Mm. That was really beautiful. Wow. Yeah. Really beautiful. So uh, you've already kind of given us some calls of action, but if you can uh, give the listeners two calls of action, one, uh, your favorite give-as-you-go suggestion, yes. <laughs> and, and then also uh, how to employ listening to guide your life. Yeah, great. So, yes, definitely give-as-you-go. That's something that anybody can do at any time every single day if they so choose. And the other one that is connected to my TEDx talk and my call to action is disconnect the connect. You know, what does that mean? So in a time where we are so addicted to social media and technology and TV and all these things, 
we now more than ever need to see the importance and value of disconnecting, disconnecting from the noise, right, the noise that we consciously create around us from the radio to when we're cleaning to being in the car with, you know, a, a podcast or listening to the news to television. So I really find it incredibly important to connect, disconnect from the noise, right, mm-hmm. in addition that disconnecting and finding a practice, so taking it a step further, this essence of mindfulness, right, and, and creating a, and cultivating a practice within you to, to shut out the noise out there because the noise will always be there. We are, you know, there's a quote, I may only be one person, but I can be the one to make a difference. And it starts with each one of us, and each one of us is our own vessel in this world. And the more we take time and see value in, you know, disconnecting and sitting and creating a meditative, you know, meditation process and um, experience and taking hikes and just stepping out and being with nature, um, movement, dance, reading, journaling, reflection, these practices that get us out of our head and kind of allow us a space to work through our own things and to specifically meditation, you know, sitting there in a space where you just, you realize how many thoughts are constantly going throughout our minds every day, you Mm. know, and it's, it, it can paralyze you. It can convince you to not make an action or take, you know, take an action if you will, um, so I think, again, the more you, you see value in disconnecting and, and creating a practice where you are in more of a meditative state, whether you're cooking and just not listening to music, you're just really present with your cooking, whether you're taking a walk and not hooked up to your iPod and really just witnessing nature, that's meditation. You know, meditation doesn't have to be just sitting cross-legged on the floor. That is a very powerful mm-hmm. way to do it, but you know, when you start, you realize how much chatter there is. So... Again, disconnecting from technology to being able to reconnect within yourself. And then again, you become, you know, a vessel and a inspiration to those around you. Mm. Beautiful. Well said. <laughs> well, Yasmin, I want to thank you, one, for sharing such your uh, tender moments of the journey. Of, wow, a lot to even for myself to digest. <laughs> And I applaud you for being an example of how we can be of service in any given moment. And if you can share on, as we exit out with the listeners what your website is, we'll put the links below and also to the places you visited. But if you can just share your website for right now, that would be great. Sure. So my website is yesmeanspurposeproject.com. And that's yesmean, Y-E-S-M-E-E-N. Purposeproject.com. All right. Well, I want to thank you for being here today. I really appreciate you sharing all your experiences and your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. And if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to read just one little quote to leave the audience essentially with something really beautiful that I've taken Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a beautiful quote by Judith McKnight that says, There will be few times in your life when all your instincts will tell you to do something, something that defies logic, upsets your plans, and may seem crazy to others. When that happens, you do it. Listen to your instincts and ignore everything else. Ignore logic, ignore the odds and the complications, and just go for it. 
Aho. Aho. Once again, I want to thank Yasmin for being here today, sharing her tender moments, her inspiration to be of service, and her call to action to give as you go and disconnect from the connect. I'd also like to thank TEDx Vale for spreading ideas that are worth spreading. Until next time, this is she signing out with a full heart, a soft gaze, a deep bow, and a namaste. Be simply. Thank you.